Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry once again. Today we study what will happen to those who sincerely follow the law of God when it is viewed by society as morally wrong. Society is upside down. Many times we can see this in other arenas of life. But how dissonants are treated tells us a lot about how God's people will be treated when they are f the focus of political correctness. What happens if you are out of step with society? What happens if you are politically incorrect and you have to say things that will get you in trouble? What sacrifices will we have to make to be lawkeepers and keep all of God's commandments. But first, let me remind you that we have copies of the book History of Tomorrow, Some Things Never Change. This book is especially good for secular people as it explains Daniel 2 in terms that can be understood easily. Daniel 2 is foundational. If people understand Daniel 2, they have an introduction to prophecy that will help them understand other scriptural prophecies. I would suggest that you get a quantity for distribution and just give them away to everyone you meet. There are many people that long for a clear understanding of the times in which we live, and they want to understand Bible prophecy, but they are confused because of all the various things they hear. Prophecy is like an anchor that clears up many questions. You know what is coming when you correctly understand it. You can order the booklets by calling 540-672-3553. As we begin, let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are so unprepared for the crisis. We are unprepared to lose everything for Christ's sake. So please help us understand our times and the future. Come and be with us as we study. Thank you for your magnificent love and all you've done for us your, and your great sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 24, 9 and 10. This verse explains what will happen to those who are politically incorrect. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. 
Satan's animosity is so great that he will kill you if you are loyal to Christ. Notice that offense is related to betrayal. If people are offended by you, they are likely to turn against you. Even your friends will subtly undermine you and your social connections. In Luke, there is a little different spin on this same concept. It's found in Luke 6.22. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Why do they separate you from their company? Today that's called canceling you. How will they reproach you? Well, they will make you look like a lawbreaker. How will they treat you? Well, they will accuse you of crimes that you didn't commit. Jesus made reference to his people being hated by others in society, but even their friends will turn on them. Luke 3.13 says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Conservative people are thinking that if only conservatives can get in power, we can get America right again. They work to be accepted by enough people on both sides to get conservatives elected. But when they are in power, they are just as compromised as the liberals. But there's a story in Desire of Ages that gives us clear indication that political action is not God's plan. It starts on page 377. Jesus had been teaching all day. Now it was evening. Seated upon the grassy plain in the twilight of the spring evening, the people ate the food that Christ had provided. The words they had heard that day had come to them as the voice of God. The works of healing they had witnessed were such as only divine power could perform. But the miracle of the lows appealed to everyone in that vast multitude. All were sharers in his benefit. In the days of Moses, God had fed Israel with manna in the desert. And who was this that had fed them that day, but he whom Moses had foretold? No human power could create from five barley loaves and two small fishes food sufficient to feed thousands of hungry people. And they said one to another, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world." All day the conviction was has strengthened. The crowning act of feeding the people was the assurance that the long-looked-for deliverer is among them. The hopes of the people rise higher and higher. This is he who will make Judah an earthly paradise, a land flowing with milk and honey. He can satisfy every desire. He can break the power of the hated Romans. He can deliver Judah and Jerusalem. He can heal the soldiers who are wounded in battle. He can supply whole armies with food. He can conquer the nations. 
and give to Israel the long-sought dominion. Friends, this was a setup for the master deception that Satan will foist upon the world when he will personate Christ at the end of time. Listen to this description of Satan's work during that last great deception. It's found in Great Controversy, 624. The people prostrate themselves in adoration before him. While he lifts his hands, he pronounces a blessing upon them. As Christ blessed his disciples when he was on earth, his voice is soft and subdued, yet full of melody. In gentle, compassionate tones, he presents some of the same gracious heavenly truths which the Savior uttered. He heals the diseases of the people. And then, in his assumed character of Christ, he claims to have changed the Sabbath to Sunday and commands all to hallow the day which he has blessed. This deception is overwhelming to most people because they, they are looking for a temporal Christ, someone who will solve their temporal problems. They are looking for someone that can erase the famines and hunger that will plague the world. They are looking for someone to heal the pestilences and deadly diseases that are killing thousands around the world. But they are looking for someone who will not require them to sacrifice and obey his commandments, particularly the fourth commandment. Do you think Satan will speak humbly and appear pious and religious? Do you think this will be an easy time for God's people to stand for the right and the truth? The whole world will turn against them. Right now, the whole world is preparing to hate those who do, don't follow the popular prevailing narrative. Don't think that society will ever return to the relatively peaceful days that once blessed both sides of the political divide when everybody accepted the same realistic understanding of the world. Let's read on from Desire of Ages now. In their enthusiasm, the people are ready at once to crown him king. They see that he makes no effort to attract attention or to secure honor to himself. In this, he is essentially different from the priests and rulers, and they fear that he will never urge his claim to David's throne. Consulting together, they agree to take him by force and proclaim him king of Israel. The disciples unite with the multitude in declaring the throne of David the rightful inheritance of their master. It is the modesty of Christ, they say, that causes him to refuse such honor. Let the people exalt their deliverer. Let the arrogant priests and rulers be forced to honor him who comes clothed with the authority of God. They eagerly arrange to carry out their purpose, but Jesus sees what is afoot, and he understands as they cannot what would be the result of such a movement. Even now the priests and rulers are hunting his life, 
they accuse him of drawing the people away from them. Violence and insurrection would follow an effort to place him on the throne, and the work of the spiritual kingdom would be hindered. Without delay, the movement must be checked. Calling his disciples, Jesus bids them take the boat and return at once to Capernaum, leaving him to dismiss the people. Friends, even the disciples got caught up in a movement that could lead to political insurrection. Friends, the politics cannot save us. It will only lead to compromise and disappointment. But it is very hard to let go of politics. Politicians look like they can solve the problems we face in our world, but they only make them worse. I'll read on from the book Desire of Ages about the effect of the of Jesus turning the disciples and the people away from a political movement. Never before had a command from Christ seemed so impossible of fulfillment. The disciples had long hoped for a popular movement to place Jesus on the throne. They could not endure the thought that all this enthusiasm should come to nothing. The multitudes that were assembling to keep the Passover were anxious to see the new prophet. To his followers, this seemed the golden opportunity to establish their beloved master on the throne of Israel. In the glow of this new ambition, it was hard for them to go away by themselves and leave Jesus alone upon that desolate shore. They protested against the arrangement, but Jesus now spoke with an authority he had never before assumed toward them. They knew that further opposition on their part would be useless, and in silence they turned toward the sea. Today, many of Jesus' professed followers are hoping for a movement that will correct the wrongs in society, like abortion and other moral deviance, crime and corruption, that is as bad as it was at the time of the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and place Jesus, or at least a political Jesus, or his representative on the throne of the world. It's getting so bad that it will seem like the only human solution will be for a dictator to come and solve the problems of the world. Someone who has the interest of everyone at heart, and someone that can work for the common good. The common good, by the way, means taking away your freedom and God-given liberties. Who could that person be? Again, an attempt will be made to place this so-called Jesus on an earthly throne, so to speak, and get everyone worshiping him. It will look as though the conditions are right, and the majority will see it as for the common good and will cooperate with government and religious leaders to bring it into effect. Ultimately, a Sunday law with universal application will be imposed to get the world back on track, stop the wars, bring peace once again to society.
it will seem destined to succeed, contrary to the last time when he was here. The movement will seemingly be unstoppable, and it will take on a distinct political tone. God's people will stand astonished at the speed of the rapidly unfolding events. Like a deer caught in the headlights of an oncoming car, they will freeze in horror as they feel the hatred and realize that they are abandoned to survive by themselves. But the enthusiasm will make it seem like the right thing to do. The people cannot endure the idea that the enthusiasm that seems so godly will come to nothing. And since they have the vast majority of the world ready to cooperate, why not take the idea to its completion? Both church and state will unite together to accomplish their objectives. It will be thought to be a golden opportunity to return the nation and the world back to God and end the reign of lawlessness and corruption. I recommend that you spend some time thinking about this scenario. It is a fearful time that we are facing. Living by tr the truth is far deeper than political or religious conservatism and the consequences are more far-reaching. The question is, how strong are you spiritually when the fight reaches its pitch? Proverbs 24.10 warns, If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. On this earth, Satan and his agents are in the majority. You are outnumbered by a long shot. The battle is getting fierce, and it's making the battle lines clearer and clearer. But many conservatives, so-called, are seeking negotiation and disarmament, so to speak. They don't truly grasp how evil the enemy is. Their principles are flexible and pliable, and they believe capitulation to evil will make life easier. They join the long ranks of history's appeasers and compromisers. Abraham Lincoln spent years and lost many battles looking for generals committed to saving the American Union at any cost. Winston Churchill struggled to get his nation to see the evil arising across the English Channel. And today, God's people want to negotiate to buy them time to live the way they used to. Yet a greater evil is arising that most people don't recognize. Human nature tends to put off confronting evil and give up in adversity. But history shows that when you grow faint and compromise, evil always grows worse. Trying to do the right thing is always a struggle in this world. Why? Because human nature is dominated by a superior force, and that force is evil. Satan is the god of this world, as it says in Second Corinthians 
4, 4, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The masses of human beings are blinded by the enemy. They believe whatever lies he dishes up. Eventually, they will be ready to accept that he is Christ. You don't have to be deceived by the overwhelming deception, though. But you have to be connected to Christ. Ephesians 2, 1-6 tells us that we were once dead, but Christ has made us alive. Listen. And you hath he quickened, who, are, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together in Christ. By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But the world is deceived, completely deceived, and the deception and lies just get deeper and deeper, defending the right in an evil world, the hardest thing to do. And it's about to get a lot harder. Second Timothy 3.13 says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. How do you defend a truth when it is universally rejected by every nation and all people groups throughout the world? How do you defend the truth when you are alone and there is only a small scattered remnant? The world is headed for more deception. But defend the truth you must. That's why God put you here. Your mission is to defend the truth and the right in this wicked world and evil generation. And you will be sustained only by God. What is unfolding today is not just a matter of politics or religious preference. It's a war for your mind. Satan is real and he is relentless. And worst of all, he is ruthless. He excels at getting people to compromise. Even the small minority of true Christians have been devastated by compromise and seem lukewarm and at ease. God warns us not to be at ease in Amos 6.1. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. The enemy is coming after you. If you don't have your armor on and aren't battling every day, you will be conquered. 
you must fight evil that exists in your own life and you have to do what you can to fight the evil in those under your influence. Don't be weary in well-doing. This is a war and you have to fight it or lose eternal life. But count the cost, the consequences of doing what is right and speaking the truth when the wrong proclaims itself to be right and when truth is made to appear like a deception will be dire, even life-threatening for those who love truth and proclaim it. When truth is very unpopular and is politically incorrect, you will be punished for even believing it, and worse, for proclaiming it. You will lose everything. In fact, if you defend the truth long enough, you will lose what you have depended on to sustain you. You have to lose your fear of opinions of others, the fear of being different. You have to lose your fear of not having enough money and of having not enough food and water. You have to lose your fear of not being under the security of the medical establishment. You have to lose your fear of the government welfare net, of the government itself. You have to lose your fear of losing your shirt. And probably one of the most difficult things to be fearful of is being out of step with your friends and colleagues. But you even have to lose your fear of that. For starters, all your social media accounts will be canceled. If you speak out against the woke culture or abortion, or if you speak the truth concerning medical information that is not according to the prevailing narrative, and eventually if you tell the truth about Babylon and the beast of Revelation 13, you won't be able to post on social media or communicate with your friends. You will be completely isolated. Your job will be taken from you. And you will be fired because you don't represent the philosophy of your company. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of seniority or have worked yourself up to a high position in your workplace. You will be given no notice. You will not be given an opportunity to defend yourself or give facts concerning your case. You will just be given a letter telling you that you have been terminated. If you are a professor, doctor, or scientist and publish papers and work in the scientific community and you speak the truth against the predominant narrative, you will be stripped of all your credentials, your fellowships, your hospital privileges or university professorships and your name will be removed from the works you already published and from the institutions you are associated with. You will be censored. It's already happening to some people on various other issues. What if you're not quite as academic? Well, you still have a lot to lose. Imagine your home, your family, your job, your church. What happens if your church turns against you because you speak out against the predominant narrative? Suppose your church disfellowships you, as some churches did in World War II, to politically incorrect members, or because they wanted to be politically correct. 
They can strip you of your positions and your associations and basically leave you without a faith community to fellowship with. That's not far-fetched. That has happened in quite a number of instances where the church cooperated with the government and removed all dissonance. When your faith becomes a subject of ridicule, this is how they will treat you for being politically incorrect on spiritual matters. You will be ostracized, mischaracterized, and misrepresented. You have to start a house church or self-supporting church that is free to do what is right. The crushing censorship will be real and pervasive. It is easy to communicate and let other people know who you are and what you believe, and they too will ostracize you. Luke 6.22 says, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Stories will be told about you that are not true. Your friends and those whom you thought were your friends will spin stories about you. Church members will not speak to you. They will look the other way when you walk by or turn their backs on you and walk the other way. The media will spin stories about you that are false. They will make up stuff to smear your character and reputation. They will interview your enemies and not allow rebuttals. Don't expect fair treatment. Your friends and your family will be alarmed that you are taking such a politically incorrect viewpoint. They will cast arguments that you are harming them by taking the path you take to defend the truth. They will put pressure on you through your children. And the smaller or younger they are, the more pressure they will use. They will call social services and have the children taken from you because you are harming them by causing them to not socialize with others. They will say that you are not allowing them to be socially adjusted and respect the common good. They also may accuse you of restricting their diet to a vegetarian or plant-based fare. Imagine how that will affect young families who love the truth and want to defend and uphold it. Will they self-censor in order to keep their, ch their children? Some will have their homes raided by the FBI. Their belongings will be searched and confiscated. Your phone will be seized because of suspicions that you are planning some secret meeting or something. It will be dangerous to have a cell phone in that day. There is no privacy, no limit to the investigation of your private records of calls and texts. You can see it all in the present circumstances in our world. What they do to political offenders today, they will do to religious offenders tomorrow. And by the way, they will make snide remarks that belittle and ridicule you. They will criticize you and think of every angle they can that will make you look like a dunce or foolish or just plain odd and straight-laced. Listen to this from Fundamentals of Education, page 289. 
When we reach the standard that the Lord would have us reach, whirlings will regard Seventh-day Adventists as odd, singular, straight-laced extremists. We are made a spectacle unto the world, to angels and to men. Jesus was accused of being too straight-laced. He has gone over the road before. He knows that it feels awful. Here it is from Desire of Ages, page 89. There were some who sought his society, feeling at peace in his presence, but many avoided him because they were rebuked by his stainless life. Young companions urged him to do as they did. He was bright and cheerful. They enjoyed his presence and welcomed his ready suggestions, but they were impatient at his scruples and pronounced him narrow and straight-laced. Jesus answered, It is written, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119, 9 and 11. In fact, Jesus was a singular anomaly in his society. It eventually led to his persecution and death. His loyalty to God and to his word got him killed. Listen to this description of the way he was treated from his youth. It's from Desire of Ages, page 89. When questioned why he did not join in the frolics of the youth of Nazareth, he said, It is written, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on thy precepts, and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statute. I will not forget thy word. Psalms 119, 14 to 16. Again, he was asked, Why do you submit to such despiteful usage, even from your brothers? It is written, he said, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck, write them upon the tables of thine heart, so shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Proverbs 3, 1-4 His brothers couldn't understand his purity. His life was a rebuke to theirs, and they thought nothing of a little sin some small advantage for a small compromise. Nor could others who knew him understand why he endured mistreatment silently and patiently. The consequences of his actions and his life started early and prepared him for his later trials and his death. Eventually the Jews had to get rid of him. Jesus did not contend for his rights. He really didn't contend for the rights of anyone, natural or artificial. 
He only defended godliness and repentance toward God. He didn't campaign for reforms in society, nor carry picket signs or join marches of protest. He went about quietly doing good, healing people, and giving them comfort when they were oppressed and other godly things. His countenance always reflected joy and rejoicing in God. Listen to this statement from Desire of Ages, page 509. The government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. On every hand there were crying abuses, extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms, he attacked no national abuses, nor condemned the national enemies. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. He who was our example kept aloof from earthly governments, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because he the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart. You can take comfort that he trod the road before you. If you feel helpless, you can think of the many Bible heroes that were treated that way too. Noah was ridiculed and laughed at until the raindrops began to fall. He kept at it for 120 years before the end of the world in that era. Lot in Sodom was laughed at and ridiculed when he went around and tried to convince his children to leave the city because it was doomed. Friends, the cities are doomed today, too. They are destined for destruction. Listen to this statement from Manuscript Releases, Volume 21, page 68. He will punish cities and places where men have given themselves up to the possession of satanic agencies. Strictly will the cities of the nations be dealt with, and yet they will not be visited in the extreme of God's indignation, because some souls will yet break away from the delusions of the enemy and will repent and be converted, while the mass will be treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. Friends, you can't live in a city and expect to be free either. There are too many people that will notice every move. For example, it's difficult to follow God's counsel in the, and grow a garden in the city. Besides, starving people will strip it of every green thing when severe famine comes. Let's remind ourselves what Revelation thirteen sixteen and 17 says. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Buying and selling is a most basic function in society. You can hardly go anywhere without buying something such as fuel. We depend on the grocery store to bring us fresh produce 
from a distance, all nicely clean and ready to cook. But what if the stores can't get the produce? And what happens if you can't buy anything? Where are you going to get what you need? While you will be tempted to panic, prepare to fend for yourself. But you will get to see the way in which God will feed you. Some will have their homes confiscated too. They will be put out on the street to find another place to shelter. Most people will be very suspicious and wary of helping them because if they do, they will be helping the enemy. And that's treason. There were many groups in World War II that helped shelter Jews or Sabbath keepers, and when they were found out, they too were sent to the camps. So you won't likely get help from anybody, although God will provide. I'm glad that God has angels who excel in strength and who can stop the mouths of lions, because the modern lions will be very fierce. They can even prevent automatic weapons from working. They have many ways to protect God's people. If all these other tactics don't work, they may try to take your life. You will be hunted like a wild animal. You will ultimately have to take refuge in the caves and dens of the earth to be sustained by God. Here is a statement from Maranatha, page 270, that explains how God's people will be led to secure retreats in the mountains. During the night, a very impressive scene passed before me. There seemed to be great confusion and the conflict of armies. A messenger from the Lord stood before me and said, Call your household. I will lead you. Follow me. He led me down a dark passage through a forest, then through the clefts of the mountains, and said, Here you are safe. There were others who had been led to this retreat. The heavenly messenger said, The time of trouble has come as a thief in the night, as the Lord warned you it would come. God will tenderly care for his people in that time. He will even feed them when necessary. Here is a statement from Great Controversy, page 629. The people of God will not be free from suffering. But while persecuted and distressed, while they endure privation and suffer for want of food, they will not be left to perish. That God who cared for Elijah will not pass by one of his self-sacrificing children. He who numbers the hairs of their head will care for them, and in time of famine they shall be satisfied. While the wicked are dying from hunger and pestilence, angels will shield the righteous and supply their wants. To him that walketh righteously is the promise, Bread shall be given him, his waters shall be sure. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth them for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Isaiah thirty-three, fifteen and 16 and 41, 17. This precious statement can be 
relied on. It is the truth that endureth forever. If you are under his care, you will not worry about the temporal matters, only spiritual matters. The consequences of living the truth and of living a godly life will place God's people in the most awkward and humiliating circumstances. It will seem like the whole world is against you, and you will have to stand alone. And when the crowning deception comes, it will be very politically incorrect to be truly on the Lord's side, keeping all of his commandments and living by faith in his word. This next statement reveals the ultimate consequences of those who will be loyal to God. And again, it's an expansion of the statement I read earlier. It's found in the Great Controversy, page 624 and 625. As the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ. The Church has long professed to look to the Savior's advent as the consummation of her hopes. Now the great deceiver will make it appear that Christ has come. In different parts of the world, Satan will manifest himself among men as a majestic being of dazzling brightness, resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in the Revelation. The glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eyes have yet beheld. The shout of triumph rings out in upon the air. Christ has come! Christ has come! The people prostrate themselves in adoration before him, while he lifts up his hands and pronounces a blessing upon them, as Christ blessed his disciples when he was upon the earth. His voice is soft and subdued, yet full of melody. In gentle, compassionate tones, he presents some of the same gracious heavenly truths which the Savior uttered. He heals the diseases of the people, and then, in his assumed character of Christ, he claims to have changed the Sabbath to Sunday, and commands all to hallow the day which he has blessed. He declares that those who persist in keeping holy the seventh day are blaspheming his name, by refusing to listen to his angels, sent to them with light and truth. This is the strong, almost overmastering delusion. Like the Samaritans who were deceived by Simon Mangus, the multitudes from the least to the greatest give heed to these sorceries, saying, This is the great power of God. Acts 8.10 And furthermore, Satan is not permitted to counterfeit the manner of Christ's advent. The Savior has warned his people against deception upon this point and has clearly foretold the manner of his second coming. There shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth, Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and, the sh and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be.
this coming, there is no possibility of counterfeiting. It will be universally known, witnessed by the whole world. God's people will look like the most rebellious and treasonous people ever. They will be hauled before the courts of the land, even the highest courts, and be accused of even genocide because of their rebellion that is causing disasters that kill many thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. There is only one escape, one solution for God's people. The last statement in Great Controversy, page 625, reveals a secret. Of those who have been diligent students of the Scriptures and who have received the love of the truth will be shielded from the powerful delusion that takes the world captive. By the Bible testimony, these will detect the deceiver in his disguise. To all the testing time will come. By the sifting of temptation, the genuine Christian shall be revealed. Are the people of God now so firmly established upon his word that they would not yield to the evidence of their senses? Would they, in such a crisis, cling to the Bible and the Bible only? Satan will, if possible, prevent them from obtaining a preparation to stand in that day. He will so arrange affairs as to hedge up their way, entangle them with earthly treasures, cause them to carry a heavy, wearisome burden, that their hearts may be overcharged with the cares of this life, and the day of trial may come upon them as a thief." Most people want to avoid the truth. Even God's people don't really relish thinking about the stark and difficult future. They want a life of relative ease. That's why they haven't prepared. That's why the deception will come as a thief, unexpectedly for even church members. Friends, don't avoid the truth. Think about the consequences of living the truth and commit your life to it. It's the only way to salvation in this end time. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we see that there is a very stark future for the people of God. But it's also a bright future. We pray that we will unite with Christ so that we can be found on the right side of the present and future conflicts. Help us not to fear the consequences of living for the truth. May we stand for the lesser issues now as practice for the bigger ones. Make us willing to stand on our, on our own when it becomes politically incorrect to do so. Please, Father, send us your Holy Spirit that we may have the assurance that we are in Christ. And sustain us, we pray, during the time of trouble ahead. And thank you for your love and your watch care for your people. And we love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
We hope you have been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you have just heard is called Done Made My Vow, sung by Three Angels Chorale. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called On Our Journey Home. If you would like a copy of the CD, just send $16 postpaid, and we will gladly send you one. International listeners should send $20 USD. Be sure to mention the On Our Journey Home CD. The following is our prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis and the coming of the Lord. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month. Trudeau's nitrogen policy will decimate Canadian farming. Much like the Netherlands, Justin Trudeau is bringing in a nitrogen emissions cap that will absolutely decimate Canadian farming. In December 2020, the Trudeau government unveiled their new climate plan, with a focus on reducing nitrous oxide emissions from fertilizer by 30% below 2020 levels by 2030. Quote, fertilizers play a major role in the agriculture sector success and have contributed to record harvest in the last decade. They have helped drive increases in Canadian crop yields, grain sales, and exports. A news release from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada reads, However, nitrous oxide emissions, particularly those associated with synthetic nitrogen fertilizer use, have also grown significantly. That is why the Government of Canada has set the National Fertilizer Emissions Reduction Target, which is part of the commitment to reduce total GHG emissions in Canada by 40 to 45 percent by 2030. This is a tacit admission that any attempt to lower emissions by reducing nitrogen fertilizer will consequently lower crop yields over the next decade, hurting the agriculture sector and more importantly, hurting farmers. And indeed, according to a report from Fertilizer Canada, total emission reduction 
puts a cap on the total emissions allowable from fertilizer at 30% below 2020 levels. As the yield of Canadian crops is directly linked to proper fertilizer application, this creates a ceiling on Canadian agriculture productivity well below 2020 levels. It is estimated that a 30% absolute emission reduction for a farmer with 1,000 acres of canola and 1,000 acres of wheat stands to have their profit reduced by approximately $38,000 through $40,500 annually. In 2020, Western Canadian farmers planted approximately 20.8 million acres of canola. Using these values cumulatively, farm revenues from canola could be reduced by $396 million through $441 million on an annual basis. Wheat farmers could experience a reduction of $400 million. Moreover, Fertilizer Canada doesn't believe that forcibly decreasing fertilizer use will even lower greenhouse gases but could lead to carbon leakage elsewhere. As Alberta MP Shannon Stubbs wrote at the time in an article for the Counter Signal, the Liberal government is hiking the tax on everything carbon tax while Canadians struggle like never before with skyrocketing prices for essentials like food and fuel, heating and housing. Of course, the Liberals claim the carbon tax is revenue neutral. Whether for government or for Canadians, that's just not true. The independent, nonpartisan parliamentary budget officer calculates the GST collected on carbon taxes at more than $200 million each year, which goes straight into government coffers. Years ago, Conservatives tried to end this tax on a tax, but the Liberals wouldn't budge. Since boosting the carbon tax, gas prices have soared to over $2 per liter across Canada, with one Liberal candidate saying that the silver lining is that Canadians will be priced out of driving. And as with other problems facing our crumbling economy, Trudeau doesn't appear to be taking any actions to remedy it, unsurprising, as so often he is the root cause. Quote, in the last scenes of this Earth's history, war will rage. There will be pestilence, plague, and famine. The waters of the deep will overflow their boundaries. Property and life will be destroyed by fire and flood. We should be preparing for the mansions that Christ has gone to prepare for them that love Him. Maranatha, page 174. Next, Congress admits UFOs not man-made, says threats increasing exponentially. After years of revelations about strange lights in the sky, first-hand reports of Navy pilots about UFOs and governmental investigations, Congress seems to have admitted something startling in print. It doesn't believe all UFOs are man-made. Buried deep in a report that's an addendum to the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023, a budget that governs America's clandestine services, Congress made two startling claims. The first is that cross-domain transmedium threats to the United States national security are expanding exponentially. The second is that it wants to distinguish between UFOs that are human in origin and those that are not. Quote, 
temporary non-attributed objects or those that are positively identified as man-made after analysis will be passed to appropriate offices and should not be considered under the definition as unidentified aerospace undersea phenomenon, this document states. The admission is stunning chiefly because, as more information about the U.S. government's study of UFOs has become public, many politicians have stopped just short of claiming the unidentified objects were extraterrestrial or extradimensional in origin. The standard line is typically that, if UFOs exist, then they're likely advanced, although human-made, vehicles. Obama refused to confirm the existence of aliens, but did say that people have seen a lot of strange stuff in the sky lately when asked directly on The Late Show with James Corden, for example. But now, Congress seems to want to specifically distinguish between objects that are man-made and those that are not. A cross-domain transmedium threat is one that, by the Pentagon's definition, can move from water to air to space in ways we don't understand. In July, the Pentagon announced it was opening the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, AARO, to investigate these threats. The bill would reclassify unidentified aerial phenomenon, the government's term for UFOs, as unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena and rename the Pentagon's office in line with the new designation. Last year, a leaked video that was confirmed by the Pentagon as being authentic appeared to show a UFO seamlessly flying beneath the waves. Senator Marco Rubio, the vice chair of the Senate Select Committee overseeing intelligence that issued the report, has publicly said he wants the UFOs to be aliens and not foreign weapons. A large question, of course, is why Congress is seemingly admitting this now in public. After all, lawmakers are privy to classified information that the general public isn't. Quote, it strains credulity to believe that lawmakers would include such extraordinary language in public legislation without compelling evidence. Merrick von Rennenkampf, an Obama-era DOD official, said in an op-ed in The Hill about the budget. According to the op-ed, the comments were first noticed by UFO researcher Douglas Johnson. Quote, This implies that members of the Senate Intelligence Committee believe on a unanimous bipartisan basis that some UFOs have non-human origins, von Rennenkampf continued. After all, why would Congress establish and task a powerful new office with investigating non-man-made UFOs if such objects did not exist? Make no mistake, one branch of the American government implying that UFOs have non-human origins is an explosive development. A bipartisan group of U.S. legislators has long put pressure on the Pentagon to figure out what the strange lights are that Americans are seeing in the sky. In 2021, the DOD issued a report detailing more than 100 sightings that it investigated. It said some of what it studied could not be explained with current scientific models and asked for more time and money to study the phenomena. Congress has given it to them and now it's asking the Pentagon to focus only on those objects that haven't been designed by human hands. Quote, These persons overlook the testimony of the scriptures concerning the wonders wrought by Satan and his agents.
It was by satanic aid that Pharaoh's magicians were enabled to counterfeit the work of God. Paul testifies that before the second advent of Christ, there will be similar manifestations of satanic power. The coming of the Lord is to be preceded by the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10 And the Apostle John, describing the miracle-working power that will be manifested in the last days, declares, He doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do. Revelation 13, 13 and 14 No mere impostors are here foretold. Men are deceived by the miracles which Satan's agents have power to do, not which they pretend to do. Great Controversy, page 553 Next, UN General Assembly moves closer to adopting resolution declaring abortion a human right. Delegates at the United Nations General Assembly are finalizing negotiations on a resolution that would require all UN agencies to declare abortion a human right reportedly due to pressure from the European Union and the Biden administration. The resolution contains language about abortion that has reportedly been rejected in other resolutions over the past decade. As the Center for Family and Human Rights, CFAM, earlier reported, it's being considered for adoption by the end of the month. According to CFAM, the resolution declares that governments should secure, quote, access to safe abortion as a matter of policy and ensure the promotion and protection of the human rights of all women and their sexual and reproductive health. Western countries backing the resolution reportedly forced the inclusion of this language, although a Japanese diplomat leading the negotiation stated that delegations could not alter the language on abortion. It remained despite repeat objections according to CFAM. The resolution's language does not outright declare abortion an international human right and includes the caveat, quote, where such services are permitted by law. Quote, the European Union and the U.S. government are trying to undermine the long-standing consensus of the General Assembly that abortion is an issue that should be decided at the national level without external interference from the United Nations. Stefano Gennarini, Vice President for Legal Studies at CFAM, said in an emailed statement to the Christian Post on Monday. Gennarini said that both had done this intermittently for over 30 years, but he believes they have made it a priority now due to the U.S. Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade in June. The High Court upheld Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban in a 6-3 ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, declaring that the U.S. Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. The decision returned the power to make laws governing abortion back to the individual states. Quote, The issue isn't just whether abortion should be accessible as a matter of human rights or not. It is about protecting the integrity of international aid, Gennarini wrote, until now, the General Assembly consensus was that governments should help women avoid abortion. Gennarini believes there will be pressure on women to abort if the UN considers adopting the resolution as part of its response to sexual violence. 
quote, Abortion is cheaper than providing health care and social support to mothers and their children, he told CP. There is an inherent tension here. No woman should ever feel pressured to abort by governments or international agencies. Delegates noted that the EU appeared to be rather aggressive in its negotiations, which is not standard protocol, according to CFAM. The main sponsors of a resolution typically facilitate negotiations, and they do not negotiate it themselves. Another apparent break from tradition is the term safe abortion, which appears in the resolution as UN member states have not widely accepted the phrase. Roughly half the voting members of the Human Rights Council supported Egypt, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia's proposed amendments to delete the term. Currently, those countries ban or impose restrictions on abortion. In Egypt, abortion is prohibited under Articles 260 to 264 of its July 1937 Penal Code. However, the country makes exceptions in cases where the mother's health or life is in danger. According to the Center for Reproductive Rights, an abortion advocacy group, Saudi Arabia permits abortion if the mother's mental or physical health is at risk. As the World Health Organization reported in May 2017, abortions in Bahrain can only be committed after authorization from a health professional and in an authorized facility. The country also permits sanctions on the woman seeking an abortion, the abortionist, and an individual that assists with the abortion. Progressive Western countries' efforts to promote safe abortion is at odds with the consensus of the General Assembly, defined during the 1994 International Conference on Population and Development according to CFAM. The caveats adopted during the Cairo conference state that the UN shouldn't make any determination on the matter of abortion. They add that governments should help women avoid abortion and focus on helping them provide for their children before and after birth. Wickedness is increasing and now the whole world wants to adopt disregard for life. Quote, the record of crime and iniquity in the large cities of the land is appalling. The wickedness of the wicked is almost beyond comprehension. Many cities are becoming a very Sodom in the sight of heaven. The increasing wickedness is such that multitudes are rapidly approaching a point in their personal experience beyond which it will be exceedingly difficult to reach them with a saving knowledge of the third angel's message. The enemy of souls is working in a masterful manner to gain full control of the human mind. And what God's servants do to warn and prepare men for the day of judgment must be done quickly. Evangelism, page 25. Next, Oklahoma ranchers predict beef to rise to $50 per pound. I don't know about you, but my average grocery bill has just about doubled in the last year. I am not eating more of or higher priced meals. It's just the normal response to inflation. As fuel rises, the price of everything else does the same. But inflation isn't what Oklahoma's ranchers fear for the future of their industry. It's the drought. The whole state of Oklahoma is currently classified in a state of drought. Some areas are considered abnormally dry, while others are listed as experiencing extreme drought status. But that's not painting the full picture that is happening across the entire beef industry right now. During periods of past drought, 
it hasn't historically been a widespread occurrence. It's usually one region or another suffering from dry conditions and the other regions have been able to support those in need. For example, during Oklahoma's last deep drought about a decade ago, the dry conditions were mostly limited to parts of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska. The heartland, as people tend to call it. Producers out east, west, and north were able to produce the hay and feed products to keep our beef industry chooching at a premium price. That's not the case during this drought. This drought isn't currently limited to Oklahoma and a handful of other states. It's almost the entire western half of the country, and the pain we're feeling now in the store is nothing compared to what ranchers are warning us of. At the present moment, a bale of hay costs roughly twice as much as it did during last year's rain-adequate growing season. The same can be said for feed thanks to the high fuel cost for transport. Can you see where this is going yet? If it costs $200 to feed and raise a cow in 2021 to a market value of $600, imagine what the value will have to be when 2022's herds hit the same market seeking the same profit margin. If it costs $400 to feed and raise that same cow, it'll need to fetch a finished price in a fair comparison because each farm and ranch in America is a small business that must profit to survive or cease to exist. Thanks to the unending economic symptoms of the pandemic and 2022's inflation double punch, average beef prices are currently about twice what they were in 2019. Add in the deepening widespread drought, a shortage of hay and feed, skyrocketing prices, transport costs, and various other metrics, some southwest Oklahoma beef producers suggest cheap ground beef could eventually top $50 per pound. Even worse, while beef is the topic because Oklahoma is a beef-producing state, the same trend is happening to other raised proteins at the moment too. The answer won't be, we'll just switch to chicken. Those prices are steadily climbing too, and let's not get depressed together thinking about bacon and pork loin. Between the current inflation and the weather, we could be headed towards another Dust Bowl and Great Depression part due. I know, I know, that's an extreme outlook and quite the conclusion to jump to. But it's not unreasonable. Let's hope white people taco night won't become a thing of the past. Drought is a sign of the last days. Quote, We are amid the perils of the last days, and trying times are before us. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, that those things that cannot be shaken may remain. Drought, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, casualties by sea and land will multiply. Life will be unsafe anywhere, only as the life is hid with Christ in God. Now, while the angels are holding the four winds, is our opportunity to seek the Lord most earnestly. Manuscript Releases, Volume 20, page 285. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus.
Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.